Well, if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12 in your Bibles. Matthew 12. Let me just take this in. This is a beautiful sight. I wasn't here with you last week. I was in Kentucky preaching at Third Avenue Baptist Church. And uh, so I'm enjoying this for the first time, seeing you all in this room. We're in the second half of Matthew 12 today as we work our way through this glorious portrait of our Savior from Matthew the tax collector. I don't remember the exact grade of school, but sometime in elementary school, I was introduced to that math concept of greater than, less than. Greater than, lesser than, marked by those symbols like this, like, like V's turned sideways for greater than on this side or lesser than on this side. Problems went like this. There was a number on this side and a, another number on this side, and there was a blank in the middle, and the student had to put the greater than or less than symbol uh, later on, it got a little more complicated where there were math problems on each side and you had to do the math and then get to the sums. But then it was still a simple answer. Is it a greater than or less than or perhaps equal to? And that's it. I loved the simplicity of greater than and less than. Uh, this was caveman math as far as I was concerned <laughs> in third grade or fourth grade, whatever it was. Just two options, maybe three, and you could actually see the difference. Again, this is, this is caveman stuff. This is bigger, smaller. That's, that's it. <laughs> and yet, I'd like to think that I got all those questions right in those days of math, but I didn't. Because if your math was off, and then your sums were off, and then your two or three option answer could be off. And if it was off, it was off all the way. No partial credit. You put the wrong symbol in the blank. Well, our passage for today in Matthew 12 is about several things that are greater than something else. Not many passages of Scripture and not many sermons could be represented with merely a symbol but this is one of them. So if you're a note taker, write a big sideways V atop your notes. It doesn't matter which way it points because the passage will force us to wrestle through several different things that are either greater or lesser. And keep in mind as we do so that just like the math problems of grade school, yes, the options are few, making this relatively simple, but that doesn't mean everyone gets it right. Matthew 12, look down in your Bibles and follow along as I start reading in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Did you notice several different contrasts in our passage? Even language that is explicit about what is greater and even what is worse than something else. While our passage has more than three contrasts in it, there are three clear sections to it. Your English Bible probably has this marked out by three paragraphs and three headings. Those are not supplied by the original author, but they're put there by scholars and often wisely so. And that's the structure of our passage this morning. The first of these sections is going to take the longest. It has the most going on by far. So just keep that in mind. And we could call this first section a different sign. A different sign, verses 38 to 42. Notice the Pharisees and the scribes have this demand of Jesus. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We wish to see miraculous power from you. Now, Jesus has been doing plenty of miracles during this time, at this very moment, in this very scene. And in the presence of these same religious leaders. Remember, earlier in chapter 12, starting in verse 9, Jesus healed a man with a disfigured hand. And the Pharisees conspired to destroy him in response. And as we saw last week in chapter 12, in verse 22 and following, there was there a man, demon-possessed, blind and mute, healed by Jesus. The crowd wondered whether he was the promised son of David. But the Pharisees said he must be casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub or the devil. They will make up some crazy stuff to try to not own up to what is right in front of them and obvious. Jesus has indeed been providing signs. And they have witnessed them and they've tried to dodge the implications. And yet, they demand here a sign. Perhaps they're looking for a different kind of sign than the previous healings. Perhaps they're looking for a, a really big sign, something in the sky, you know, not down here on planet Earth. Or perhaps they're just stubbornly demanding just 
one more sign, just one more miracle, like that might put them over the edge. It doesn't really matter what kind of sign they're demanding. This is the silly stubbornness of unbelief on full display. Now, some people, before they become Christians, they have legitimate, honest questions that really do need to get answered before they can become Christians. We've all had the pleasure of walking someone through some of those kind of questions. But there are others out there who are not really in search of answers, even though they have questions. They are really in search of objections or excuses. The Pharisees are clearly in that latter category. Just, just one more sign and we'll believe. Just one more big one and then we'll believe. In Mark and Luke's account, they were told that they said this to test him. So these are not genuine seekers. These are skeptics. And they wouldn't believe even with one more sign, even one real big one, would they? If you've been saying to God recently, I would believe in Jesus, you're just going to have to show me. You're going to have to really show me. I need some real proof. I'll believe the Bible, but I need evidence. Well, perhaps this passage today will help you to see that as really an excuse, as really for what it is, unbelief. And Jesus here calls it evil, evil. It's evil because it essentially says to God, you haven't given me enough credibility. You hear how wicked that is? You hear how suspicious that is of God? You're going to have to convince me because you haven't done it yet. And notice Jesus responds, no sign for you. Verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it. They are adulterous, not because they've been unfaithful in their marriages necessarily. They, they have been unfaithful in their relationship to God. This imagery of spiritual adultery traces back to the Old Testament prophets who kept using it about God's people who were cheating on God with other gods. You can find it in Jeremiah. You can find it in the whole book of Hosea. You can find it intensely in Ezekiel 16 if you want to read it there. Jesus is taking that language from those prophets and he is applying it to these Bible teachers. These spiritual leaders in his own day. They would have never thought of themselves like those people back then that the Old Testament prophets condemned. But Jesus says that's exactly what they are and they're proving it as they demand another sign. But Jesus offers them a different sign. No sign will be given to it, verse 39, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What's that sign? Well, verse 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
Here, Jesus forecasts his coming death, a three-day burial, and presumably that burial coming to an end because it's only three days. This is the first time Jesus speaks of his coming death and resurrection, at least in Matthew's telling of things. And he does so with remarkable precision, even if it sounds enigmatic at first. The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, just like Jonah in that great fish. Now, Jesus and Jonah aren't similar in every way. Jonah was a sinfully reluctant prophet, and Jesus is no reluctant preacher. Jonah didn't die in the belly of the great fish, and Jesus will die and die all the way. But there is this parallel that after three days of a deadly situation, both Jonah and Jesus were delivered and alive. For Jonah, it was a near-death experience. For Jesus, it was a full-death experience. So not the same in every way, but there is a parallel. Jonah was like a foreshadow of this one thing that he faced death and came out the other side alive, and this took place over three days. Now, let me just say as a quick side note, I have no difficulty believing that Jonah was literally sustained inside of a giant fish for three days. Do I know how that happened scientifically? Did God put him in some sort of bubble so that stomach acids were not affecting him? I, I don't know. But I know this. If you've got problems with the science of the Jonah story, you're going to have way bigger problems when it comes to Jesus' resurrection. Don't think the Bible is false and fake because no way a man could survive inside a giant fish for three days. This is the Bible of the resurrection. It makes no apologies. But what about the timing? Maybe another skeptical kind of question would be, but it says here three days and three nights. And we know Jesus was crucified uh, midday Friday, and then he was raised sometime early Sunday morning. How is that three days and three nights? Well, keep in mind that Jesus is quoting Jonah 1.17 here. And Jonah 1.17 uses that language of three days and three nights about Jonah. Jesus is just picking up that language. Jesus is not necessarily giving precise time markers as if to designate 72 hours in the grave. Besides, it was common in this culture to count days by any part of a day, not just whole days. So don't get hung up on three days and three nights like Jesus' prediction of his burial was close but no cigar. No, he's, he's just drawing a simple parallel with Jonah, who was rescued from death on the third day. And if we're reading the Bible carefully and repeatedly, occasionally you come across some really good things that happen 
on a third day. Not all third days in the Bible are good, but so many of them are that you think, huh, God's up to something here. Like he uses the number 7 or 10 or 12 in various ways, so often really good things happen on the third day. Like Genesis 22, the testing of Abraham with Isaac and God providing a substitute sacrifice. It was on the third day. Or the giving of the law in Exodus 19. God gave the law at Sinai on the third day. Or, or Joshua in the Israelites crossing the Jordan into the promised land. Guess what? On the third day. Or language like this in Hosea 6. Come, let us return to the Lord that he may heal us. On the third day, he will raise us up. It's with that kind of background in mind that Jesus shows up on the scene and talks about something big happening on a third day. In John 2, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And John adds the comment there. He said this about his body, not the physical temple. So here, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here's your sign, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Here's the sign. Now, now the only sign, the only sign that Jesus offered these religious leaders and still offers today is the cross and the empty tomb, Good Friday and Easter. That's it. That's enough. That's enough for you to believe. That's more than enough. It's all you need. He offers now only one sign because it is so central, so integral to who he is and what he came to do. No other sign would communicate more than his death and resurrection. Not your healing, not someone else's exorcism, not a spectacular display in the sky, not Jesus' face on a tortilla. <laughs> None of those or anything else you can think of would tell you more about him or prove himself to you better than Good Friday in Easter. Amen. Now later on in Matthew, in chapter 20, verse 28, he'll tell us what the cross was for. Why was it needed? What did it do it was a ransom that word is really important a ransom it was in some of the songs we sang this morning he was a ransom for us a payment for sin a ransom that was paid to free us from the bondage of sin and guilt that's what jesus was doing on the cross he was dying in our place because the wages or the payment of sin death. If you haven't yet come to believe that, that's, that's where we would point you. Jesus would point you to this one sign, this death in resurrection, this what I've called before a, a gospel weekend. And I would point you specifically to what it means, a ransom. It's a ransom for any and all who will simply believe it and trust it and call on him to receive it. Now back to that conversation that Jesus was having with these religious leaders. 
Notice that Jesus calls on two unlikely witnesses to prove their guilt. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. The infamously wicked, pagan, Gentile Ninevites in the book of Jonah, they heard the preaching from the prophet Jonah, and they turned from their sin and to the living God. All they had to go by was the preaching, the words of a half-hearted prophet, and it was enough. But the people of Galilee in Jesus' day had been hearing the preaching of the Son of God. They had been witnessing the presence of the Son of Man, that one who comes with authority, Recorded for us in Daniel 7. The people of Galilee in Jesus' day had seen him prove his power over the curse with these many healings. The religious leaders had seen it all, heard it all, and they credited it to Satan. The queen of the south will also testify. She'll rise up at the judgment and condemn this generation because she came from the ends of the earth, Ethiopia, over 1,500 miles from Jerusalem. She came from her home to Jerusalem to hear the wisdom of King Solomon. That's in 1 Kings chapter 10 if you want to read about it. She went to great lengths to hear and to heed God's truth. So she, like the Ninevites, could testify that those who had seen and heard Jesus, who had seen far more glory than Solomon's wealth, who had heard far greater truth than Solomon's Proverbs, they should have believed what they heard from Jesus. It's fascinating to me. Jesus calls on Gentiles, Ninevites, and an Ethiopian woman to provide damning testimony to the guilt of his Jewish hearers. Do you think they would have had their feathers ruffled a bit by that? And they certainly would have by these plain, bold statements. Something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says, referring to himself. Something greater than Solomon is here. He said back in verse 6 of the same chapter, something greater than the temple is here. He's implied he's greater than the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is then the final and ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He's greater than anything, greater than everything. Put the sign, the greater sign here. Jesus is here. Put everything else in all the worlds, in all of history, to this side. It is less than. He is greater. Now, secondly, and I told you that first point would take a while. <laughs> secondly, there's a worse condition. I'll show you how fast this one can go. Here we have a, a, a difficult, rather 
enigmatic paragraph in verses 43 to 45. Let me read it again and see if you think so. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this generation. Now we can start whittling our way toward clarity by settling what is most obvious and easy to understand. That this is an illustration, I think, of the state of things, the spiritual state of things of this evil generation. The same people Jesus was talking to right before. Notice, that's the same conversation going on. And notice, in verse 45, the conclusion of the matter is that there is a worse condition as a result of whatever came before in the confusing verses 43 and 44. So it's an illustration of this evil generation with this conclusion, they're worse off. It's a worse condition now than whatever happened before. So even at this point, we might safely realize that this would be a very dangerous text from which to develop a whole theology of demons and spiritual warfare. Indeed, some do just that. They conclude from this passage that demons, when they're cast out of a person, they apparently roam aimlessly until they find their next host. They conclude that demons prefer, apparently, to go back to old stomping grounds, so they are territorial. They conclude that those who were once demon-possessed are more likely to be demon-possessed again, even worse after. And they conclude that demons apparently like to run in packs, preferably eight at a time. Now, I did not make those up. I simply found them on the web. Some people actually put this stuff together like that. But remember, Jesus is not doing demonology 101 classroom time here. This falls within a conversation. He's addressing this evil generation and describing a scenario where, at the end, they're in the worse condition than they were when they began. So what's the scenario in the middle? What's the illustration? What's the illustration illustrating? Perhaps it'll help for me to pull the illustration out of illustration mode and simply into didactic, direct teaching mode. That's not a great way to teach. There's a reason Jesus uses parables and illustrations at times. But when it's confusing, perhaps it's easy to just talk about it didactically, not parabolically. The ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus have, as it were, been cleaning house in Israel. In Jesus' ministry, this has literally meant the casting out of demons. Jesus is sweeping away obstacles. But what will fill that space? Will he fill that space? 
The man who was healed of demons and disease, back in chapter 12, verse 22, afterward, he spoke and he saw. That's what the text says. And the text says no more about him. It's an argument from silence, but perhaps there was nothing more to it for the man than a healing of the man. As for the crowd who saw the healing, they were amazed. They wondered whether this was the son of David, and that's good. But will there be more? Will their question turn to answers? Will their amazement turn to faith? Well, tune in next week. We'll find out in chapter 13. But if it does not, then they will be no better off from having been around Jesus and his miracles. They will actually be worse off. That's the point of this enigmatic paragraph. So be warned. Here's the application. Be warned. It is more dangerous. It is a greater problem to have a little inoculation of Jesus that keeps you indifferent to him than to never have had any of him to begin with. And maybe today you would admit that he's been sweeping some things up in your life in recent days. He's been taking some things away that were getting in the way. He's removing distractions and hurdles. Will he fill it? Will he fill it? That's the question. If not, it's a worse condition. But then after that sad and hard paragraph, there's a more hopeful one, which we could call a new family. A new family. If Jesus is greater than anything and everything, then what we do with him and how we relate to him is fundamental to who we are and how we relate to everyone else. What we do with Jesus and how we relate to him reorientates the most fundamental aspects of life even sometimes our families. Jesus' mother and brothers come looking for him, verse 46. Apparently he's teaching in a house, and it must be crowded. They can't get in. And so word gets to Jesus that his family is there and would like to see him. Simple enough so far. But there's this hint even before Jesus speaks his mother and his brothers are on the outside, we're told. Which may indicate more than geography and proximity. It may indicate their spiritual state at this time. What Matthew only alludes to in a possible hint of this word outside, the other gospel writers make explicit. In Mark... At this point, the family is coming for Jesus to get him to come home because they fear he is out of his mind. Mark 3, 21. 
In John's account, John just says in passing, chapter 7, verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him at this time. So when Jesus' family arrives to the house, he takes opportunity to teach his disciples about family. Essentially, he says, there's family, and then there's family. He says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Now, let's be very clear. Jesus isn't here disowning his family, nor is he dismantling families as a social construct. Families have been no small part of God's plan from the beginning. Just read Genesis 1 and 2. And the New Testament epistles, for that matter, long after Jesus taught these provocative words in Galilee in Matthew 12, the New Testament epistles lay out extensive teaching for families and how they relate to each other, husbands and wives and children to parents and parents to children. Families have always been and are still part of God's glorious plan. They are often beautiful. They are sometimes painful. But there's nothing wrong with the family. And yet, they are not ultimate. They are not ultimate. What we do with Jesus is so definitive, so decisive, so defining that those who share that faith in common have the most important thing in all the world in common. And so they are sometimes far, far closer to each other than blood relatives that don't share that same faith. Jesus has already spoken to this matter in Matthew 10. Back then, he said there'll be a dividing line that splits families. He says, I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Father will deliver his child over to death. So there's some bad news here, some hard news. Jesus can sometimes mess up a family. That's what he says. He came to bring a sword. Now, if you became a Christian in your adult years, and your dad didn't agree with you, but he supported it because it seemed like a good thing for you, son. Well, that's great. Just know that that is not everyone else's experience. Just know that for many, many on our Native American reservations, when they decide to follow Jesus, they are cut off. They are disowned. They are bad-mouthed. There's hope, though, even in those unbelieving families, with those who are so strongly resistant to the gospel. You have to know that Jesus' mother and brothers eventually did come to believe in him. And boy, did they. 
Mary was there at the cross. In Acts 1, as the 120 disciples were in the upper room praying and fasting, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, there we find, with the 120, we're with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So don't write off family. Don't write off family that you were born into or adopted into. There is hope for them and for their souls as long as they have breath. But at the same time, we shouldn't think that our physical family is the only place to have meaningful and fulfilling connection and relationship with love and acceptance. So here's the good news that Jesus is getting at with this radical teaching about a new family. For those who believe and follow Jesus... He is collecting them, like this very scene right here. He is collecting them and making them into a whole new family. A people who have the most important thing in common and that will never change. And this is for anyone. Did you notice that word, whoever, in verse 50? Whoever. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, the most fundamental thing that Jesus has been teaching about the will of his Father is that you have to get right the Son, right? You have to believe in the Son. You have to listen to him. But after that, yes, you also need to heed and follow what he teaches about the Father's will. Things like what's described and prescribed in the Sermon on the Mount. We are to be shaped by Jesus' teaching about the Father's will. That doesn't make us sons and daughters of God, but because we're sons and daughters of God, it's an apt description of us. We're those who do the Father's will. But again, that's for anyone. That's, that's a whoever it's not dependent on ethnicity or religious heritage or religious proximity. Which means that every kid who grew up in a Christian home still has to deal with Jesus directly. You have to know that your relationship with Jesus is not at all dependent on your parents' relationship with Jesus. Your relationship to Jesus, kids, is not dependent or determined by your parents' relationship to Jesus. you got to do business with God on your own. You will not go to heaven simply because you've been around Jesus stuff your whole life. How do I know? Because Jesus' own immediate family were not on the inside just because they were family and just because they were around him. Now, there might be others here who didn't grow up in a Christian home, and you're not remotely worried about thinking that you're in with God because your parents were in with God. You know your parents have never been in with God. Well, here's good news for you. Christian parents are not required for anyone to become Christians. It's for whoever. 
Whoever is on the inside of Jesus and beginning to follow him can come into his family to be adopted. Oh, I hope you know and love and cherish that doctrine of adoption that we have as Christians. Jesus spoke of it in John 1, or John spoke of it rather, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. Born into a new family. Born into a family with the God of all creation, the God of eternity, as our Father who cares for us, who listens to us, who provides for us, who protects us, who watches over us, who listens to us, who puts up with us. In this new family, Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man, is our big brother. He cares for us. He watches over us. And in this new family, we now have countless other brothers and sisters. It's a beautiful family. It is a, a greater, grander, and longer-lasting family than any earthly human family could ever be. It's better. It's greater. I hope you love how the New Testament epistles refer to other Christians as brothers and sisters. That's not hokey southern culture like I thought it was when I was a kid. I thought, that must come from the south. It sounds like those dudes down in the southeast of the country would come up with that, calling everyone brother. <laughs> but now I love it because it's so true, right? Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? It's especially true at a local church. Desert Springs, we are family. Not a perfect family, but we are family. We are family to those who don't have any family. And we are family to those who have big, wonderful families. We share the most important thing in common, even if we share nothing else in common. I know of no other community or organization or entity like the church. Every other group is marked out by some random cultural identity marker, whether it's wealth or ethnicity or neighborhood or age or education or even which football team you cheer for. And the church is a place where none of that matters, but everyone matters because we're tied in with Jesus, our big brother, and God is our father. I am so blessed to be in a church over 19 years now that is indeed our family. If you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you to take note Look around. Get to know us a little more. Perhaps you'd want to visit one of our community groups. 
you won't find perfection. But you might find something, dare I say, supernatural, unexplainable, apart from something divine, something miraculous, almost a sign for you. If you're not a member of a local church like this one, we'd encourage you to pursue that. We'd encourage you not just like to go to church, but to be the church, to be a family, just to show up at the meals, you know, to hang out in the living room, to get to know each other, to care for one another, to share life together, to be burdened by another, and to bear a burden for another. And if you are a member of this local church, well, let's just press on in the grace of God. Let's press on. Let's remember. There are a lot of things in this world that are good, some things that are great. We have something great because we're tied into one who is greater than anything. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word and what it reveals to us and what Jesus teaches us here. We thank you for the reality that we experience even in this local church. Oh, Lord, help us to love you and to share that love with others and to love each other as you've called us to. For your namesake, amen.